This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In an experiment. Why is light so fast? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Hello and welcome to a packed edition of the Nature Podcast. This week, we'll be asking writers their thoughts on the relevance that science fiction has in the modern era and what relevance AI has to Earth science. Plus, you'll hear three fantastically festive science-themed carols and we'll be testing the pod team's knowledge of this year's biggest research stories. This is the Nature Podcast for December the 21st, 2017. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. It's no secret that the 21st century presents some immense challenges for our societies. And many of these, from climate change to food security, are deeply connected to how we use our planet. Earth sciences are grappling to uncover the implications of these crises, as well as to propose solutions. In a comment piece in this week's Nature, Lucas Jopper argues that artificial intelligence might be one essential solution. Lucas is Chief Environment Scientist at Microsoft. To my knowledge, uh, it's the first Chief Environmental Scientist position in the technology industry. Lucas is keen for progress in AI to be used to tackle Earth's challenges. I gave him a call to find out what he feels is missing from Earth sciences that AI might be able to offer. I think that if you look at what the technology sector has done for our ability to monitor and, and model our own human systems, it's, it's incredible, right? The amount of data that we collect and the amount of insights and actions that we're able to make recommendations about just in your day-to-day activities, everything from online shopping to calendar recommendations and artificial intelligence and, and the information age just saturates our daily lives. But when you look out there, there's this massive data gap or, or kind of data drought in the environmental in the environmental sciences. I mean, one of the early examples I like to use is if you ask what we actually know just about Earth's natural 
resources. So things like where is our water, where are our trees, where are our forests, our fields, and things like that. Well, here in the United States, one of the most technologically advanced countries in the world, our best available land cover maps, they're at 30 meter resolution and they're almost seven years old. And you mentioned that you feel like we need more information to manage these issues we're facing. Specifically, what issues do you have in mind? We're being faced as a society with one of our biggest, if not the biggest challenge yet, which is how do we mitigate and adapt to changing climates, ensure resilient water supplies, sustainably feed a population rapidly growing to nine or 10 billion people. Um, and so, you know, there's a there's a big challenge ahead of us. But I think where I'm where I'm trying to go with this comment piece in, in nature is to say that, yes, we have a big challenge, but we have a big opportunity as well. I think most people will be sympathetic to the idea that we need more data. I mean, every, in every field, everyone always says we need more data. But, but what could AI specifically actually add to this? What, what's your vision for AI in earth sciences? So AI can really help change how we observe or sense natural systems. And then that's also where AI can help is helping us optimize, make optimal decisions over that exponentially increasing amount of information that's streaming in from these data collection platforms. Is there a concrete example of AI being used in environmental sciences already in a way that you think of as effective and positive? Yeah, for sure. I think I feature one of my favorite applications um, in, in the comment piece. And this is an organization called iNaturalist. And iNaturalist is a one of the world's largest citizen science um, platforms specifically focused on biodiversity observations. What iNaturalist is out there trying to do is empower non-experts to do the job of an expert scientist. Most people who are non-experts can't identify most species that they see. Well, we can do that with AI in a few different ways. One of the most obvious ones is to train up a deep neural network to be able to recognize over 5,000 species that they currently have. Could you explain how that might potentially be able to translate to something like uh, observing the climate? There's one example that I, that I like to think of if you look at the way that general ecosystem models or general climate models produce their results, they usually produce results on the order of 100 to several hundred square kilometers. Well, that's fantastic if you're looking at global patterns, maybe even national patterns, but it's not really helpful if you're down at the level of like a city planner trying to understand the infrastructure that you might need to invest in over the next 50 years. And there's researchers recently that use outputs of, of global climate models and downscale them using a technique called super resolution. It's an algorithmic technique that came from trying to take uh, photos that are being taken by potentially low budget uh, smartphones, for instance, and sharpen those photos so that they look a lot better using algorithmic techniques. They can take that same approach and apply it to the output of these precipitation outputs from, from global climate models and bring the spatial resolution of these predictions down to about 10 square kilometers. So how do we get to this point where artificial intelligence is more widely used in the environmental sciences? It's time for technology companies to step up and start paying attention, start investing and start building dedicated programs. Now AI 
I guess like everything, is imperfect. Do you think there are any risks in kind of handing more of this information decoding over to artificial intelligence? We have to, just like all applications of artificial intelligence, we have to make sure that these earth applications that I'm talking about are trustworthy, transparent, and fair. Um, that, but that's not new to to this space. Quite frankly, I think that the risks of not doing anything far outweigh the risks of um, of the alternative. Time is too short and resources too thin to achieve the environmental goals that we've we've set out as an international community without some sort of exponential breakthrough. That was Lucas Jopper, who's based at Microsoft in Redmond, USA. To find out more about Lucas's vision of AI in earth sciences, make sure to read his full comment piece. Find it at nature.com forward slash news. As has become something of a tradition around these parts, it's time for a carol. Tis the season after all. First up, we've got a student's watch their plots by night, which is going out to all of you graduate students who are working hard over the festive period. Now, Adam, I have been at work on Christmas Eve in the past. I think I was uh, growing up some cells, and I'm sure you have too. Yeah, definitely. I I think I've spent a Christmas Eve and a Boxing Day trying to correct uh, some plots. I was subtracting November from December instead of December from December. We've all done that. You know, Adam, I didn't do a great deal of that during my PhD, but I think I and some of you listening at home can empathise. Speaking of those of you at home, if you'd like to sing along, check out our Twitter channel, at Nature Podcast, which will have all the lyrics to today's songs. That song was performed by the Simon Langton Boys' School Choir, led by Emily Renshaw Kidd, with lyrics by Sharmini Bundell, Anna Lucock, and Lizzie Gibney. Stick around for some more carols later in the show, but before them, Sharmini Bundell's been speaking to some science fiction authors about the genre's place in this rapidly changing world. 
The popularity of the science fiction genre, which really took off in the 19th and early 20th century, shows no sign of abating. In the cinemas this year, we've had Alien Covenant, Blade Runner 2049 and The Last Jedi. Star Trek is back on TV again. But the world of real science increasingly seems just as wondrous, with new discoveries, global climate changes and societal shifts as a result of scientific developments and ubiquitous technology. A series of essays in the books and arts section this week asks, is science fiction still relevant in an increasingly surreal world? To find out, I spoke to two science fiction writers, both former scientists, who contributed essays to this week's issue. The first is Hannu Ryanyemi, who has a PhD in mathematical physics and is best known for his 2010 novel, The Quantum Thief. I started off by asking him how he came to be interested in both science and science fiction. My um, interest in science uh, was actually sparked by Jules Verne when I was uh, seven years old because I kind of wanted to, to build a submarine or a vehicle or a spaceship of some kind. I think it certainly, certainly informed uh, the writing to, to the extent that uh, I do sort of have access to a, quite a broad range of weird ideas from physics. What's sort of interesting is that in my career, the feedback loop has, has sort of gone both ways. So my previous company did quite a bit of research work for the UK MOD. And one of our major research projects was actually sparked off by the program director uh, reading The Quantum Thief and picking up on some ideas there. And do you think that's common, that, that scientists are inspired by things in science fiction and it's sort of a, a feedback loop of each pushing the other forward? I, I think that's right. So probably the most famous example is the atomic bomb. So H.C. Wells wrote a book called The World Set Free, which features, features a sort of a suitcase-sized device with enough explosive power to destroy an entire city that can be dropped from an, from an airplane. And he actually calls it the atomic bomb. What science fiction is very good at is creating these images that give everybody sort of a common understanding of what we could aspire towards, or in the case of dystopian science fiction, try to stay away from. Technological change is happening so fast all around us, not just within science fiction, and that was something that was sort of mentioned in the essays. What is science fiction's role anymore in this world where technology seems to be almost more fabulous and dreamlike. I think science fiction in a world like that where things are changing faster and faster is absolutely essential because I think it is the only form of literature or, or fiction that, that really deals with the possibility of the world changing. So I think really immersing ourselves into the idea that uh, the way things are today is not necessarily the way things are tomorrow is absolutely crucial. So, so I think as things move faster and faster, science fiction can sort of serve as a kind of prophylactic against uh, a sort of future shock, that sense of being, being overwhelmed. Thank you, Hannu Ryanyemi. The second author I spoke with was Alistair Reynolds, who worked for the European Space Agency before he decided to pursue writing full-time, and who has since published several novels and short stories, including the Revelation Space series. Alistair has a slightly different take on the place of science fiction in our rapidly advancing and increasingly sci-fi-like world. Well, I, I always take slight issue with that premise that, that we are living in a, t a time of unusually rapid development. I always think that that smacks to me a little bit of assuming you have a privileged viewpoint. You know, just looking through the inventions and discoveries that had sort of happened between about 1900 and 1917, it seemed to me that, that you know, the world was changing at just as breathless a pace then as it is now. And I, I wonder if that's 
perhaps why science fiction as a sort of mass cultural phenomenon emerged in the sort of early decades of the 20th century precisely because of that challenge of of meeting that sense of uh, ever ever increasing social and technological change. And trying to be prescient and have these like possible ideas about the future, um, is that kind of the point of sci-fi? Is that why you think people enjoy it? There are a number of lucky hits where science fiction predicted things that came true, but there are probably vastly more misses where science fiction failed to predict what seems in in retrospect to be the blindingly obvious. A classic example is very little science fiction literature written before the 80s came anywhere close to predicting the internet and instant communication as well. Very few science fiction books predicted anything like the cell phone. And do you worry about having a too much of an optimistic view of a technology or too much of a pessimistic dystopian view of a, of a technology? I'm trying to build futures that feel real enough to me to suspend my disbelief for the, for the time that I'm writing them. And whatever future you're living in, it's probably not going to feel like a dystopia and it's probably not going to feel like a utopia. There are many aspects of life in 2017 that would feel both utopian and dystopian to someone from 100 years ago. They, they would be amazed by some of the capabilities we have. But at the same time, I would say, well, you've you got all that, and yet you're sort of willfully messing up the environment, you're destroying your climate, and you're, and you're living with this spectre of nuclear Armageddon. And for us, it's just, that's just the way the world is. That was Alistair Reynolds talking with Sharmini Bundell. Before him, you heard from Hanu Rayanyemi. Their essays, along with several others, can be found in the Books and Arts section of This Week's Nature. Hanu has a book called Summerland coming out in 2018, and Alistair's new book, Elysium Fire, is due out in January. Time now for our next carol, which marks another unenviable year for climate change. 2017 is projected to be the second hottest year on record, topped only by 2016. Plus carbon emissions are increasing again, having held constant for several years. So, without further ado, here's In the Bleak Mid Future, Performed by Richard Navarro, with lyrics by Noah Baker and Sharmini Bundell. In the bleak mid-future, winds will blow. Earth stands hot and barren. Lake beds dry as bone. Rain will melt the ice away from all the mountain range. In the bleak mid future, thanks to climate change. These forests cannot hold it, nor the earth sustain. Glaciers will melt away as cows all bubbly thin. Ice caps are still shrinking. Beloved for 
Richard Navarro. You can hear some of his non-carol music by googling his name. Navarro is spelled N-A-V-A-R-R-O. All right then everyone, I've donned my sparkliest quiz show jacket because it's game time here in the Nature Podcast Studio and I'm joined by a host of podcast stars, both past and present. To my right here, the one and only Adam Levy. Adam, how you doing? I've got a cold but I feel pretty pepped considering. Opposite me and looking incredibly Christmassy, Lizzie Gibney. Lizzie, thanks for being here. Thank you. I'm very hyped. I've had three espressos, so I'm ready to go. And to my left, the one, the only, the undisputed champion of the Nature Podcast, it's Kerry Smith. Kerry, hello. Hi. It's uh, it's not a competition, is it? But if it was, you would win with your sparkly jacket, which is awesome. You're very kind. Finally, making up this awesome foursome is Sharmini Bundell. Sharmini, how are you feeling right now? I love games. I'm so excited. My guests here in the studio today are going to try and identify some of the biggest stories from 2017. In front of me here, I've got my hat, which contains a selection of sticky notes, each with a science story written on it. I'm going to choose one of these at random, stick it on the head of the contestant so they can't see it, and have them try to guess what the story is by asking simple yes or no questions. Sharmini, you'll be going first today. Let me choose you a story. Okay, Ben has now stuck a post-it on my head. You can only see out of one eye. I can, I can mostly can see. see. I don't need to see you. I just need to ask questions to work out what the story is and hope I remember things that happened in 2017. Um, I'm going to start with, is it a physics story? It is no. not a physics story. Both me and Lizzie are disappointed to say. <laughs> okay, good. I think I might be a bit better at biology. Is it, is it a biology story? Roughly. Yes. Oh, ish. Okay. Interdisciplinary, maybe. Um, is it to do with cells? No. No. Oh, no. Um, is it to do with genetics? Yes. Okay, something to do with maybe genes and DNA. Um, is it to do with one of my favourite topics, uh, gene editing? Mm, no. No gene editing here. Sad times. 
It is one of my favourite topics, though. Oh, that's a good clue. Um, is it to do with uh, the brain? Oh, yeah, sorry, that's one of my other favourite topics. <laughs> oh, damn it. <laughs> what else does Carrie Smith like other than brains? Um, is it about kittens? It might mm-hmm. be. Wait, what? Yes, it is about kittens. <laughs> In a way. <laughs> um, okay, something about genes and kittens. Oh, I know, we made a video about cat ancestry where they looked at their DNA and worked out where cats came from. And yes, where did where they did come they from? from? The Middle East. Yes! <laughs> Your post-it note says cats come from the Middle East. Yes, that's right. This story centres on some work studying the DNA of cats from several archaeological sites that in some cases dated back over 9,000 years. The results suggest that our feline friends originated in Egypt and the Near East. The team here have made a lovely video about this, which you can find over at youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. Next up, we've got Adam Levy. Adam, hold on one second. I'm just going to very gently stick this to your head. Okay, is it a story in the physical sciences? It's a good first question. Yes. yes. Is it Adam a climate works. change story? I'd go for climate. Like really debatable. What, really? Is it related to the cryosphere? No. What's a cryosphere? Sorry, what? <laughs> the frozen <laughs> bit. The frozen bit. Frozen bit of the planet. Oh, That's the yes, <laughs> yes, yes, it is. It is related to the cryosphere. There's some frozen bits in if it. If you yes. mean the frozen bits of the planet, yes, yes, I do. It's no. the frozen no. bits of this planet, yeah, yes. the cryosphere. It relates as to it's this. referred to. <laughs> We've discovered none of us knew the word cryosphere. Is it related to Antarctica? Yes, yeah. yeah. Is it the Larsen Sea ice shelf? I believe so. Yeah. <laughs> it's not specified by name. You've gone one up on the level of detail required for this post-it. Unfortunately, it just says giant iceberg, so I think Have you've done, I it. done it. I think you've done giant it. Giant iceberg yeah. from giant Antarctica. Iceberg cleaves off Antarctica. Ah. Well, actually, yeah, that might have happened with or without climate change, so you're right to be hesitant in that answer. Thanks, Adam. Yes, Adam, that's right. This is a story about the trillion-ton iceberg A68, that broke from Antarctica's Larsen Sea ice shelf back in July after hanging on by its frozen fingertips for some time. Next up then, Kerry, are you ready? How are you feeling? I'm so ready to have a post-it note on my face. Well, let's do it then. Right, is this a story that revolves around an inanimate object? No. no. Nope. So does it revolve around a, like a living thing? It yeah, must. It does indeed. A person? No. Nope. Okay, something from the animal world. Yeah. Yep. Firmly in biological territory. Uh, is it something primatey? Yes. Yep. Mm. So a story about something primatey. Just run us through some primates. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, there's Jimmy the primate. He's uh, a new species. You've got of a... uh, Gibbon. No. Oh, no. No. Orangutan. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right, Kerry. This story revolves around the discovery of a new species of orangutan found in a forest on the Indonesian island of Sumatra. A report of an isolated population of orangutans was made way back in the 1930s, but it wasn't until this year that tests and observations proved that Pongo tapanuliensis was in fact a new species. Sadly though, this population is already under threat from habitat destruction. Moving on then, our final contestant today is Lizzie. Let me just find you a story. Thanks, Ben. Well stuck to my forehead. Um, I'm getting some pretty puzzled looks from around the table. Is it about something that's alive or was ever alive? No. No. 
Good. I'm on better <laughs> ground then. So it's a physical sciences story? Yes. Yeah. Is it physics specifically? Let's go with yes. Did they measure something? Yes, they oh, measured oh, something. This being a science podcast, some measurement was relevant to this story. Okay. But it's not, um, that's not the essence of this story. Okay. Is it something that happened in space? Yes. Yes. Because you love space, as you give me. Your face lit up when you found that okay. out. Okay. Um, is it something that happened in our solar system? Yes. Yes. Or was it that interstellar asteroid? That would have been... No. Oh, whose name I can't no. pronounce. Okay. Is it something that happened at Saturn? Totally. Yeah. Is it... Is it Cassini just going kaboom into Saturn? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Simple answer. It's the correct one. The poster has gone for the rather more sedate visit. Okay. Yes. Cassini probe visits Saturn. Aggressively uh, visits. Aggressively <laughs> visits. <laughs> Yes, congratulations indeed, Lizzie. In September this year, we waved goodbye to the Cassini probe before it crashed into Saturn, having spent 13 years orbiting the planet and flying by a couple of its moons. The mission also successfully landed a probe on Titan, and overall it taught us so much about the planet and about its moons. So there we go, everyone. Congratulations to all my contestants for doing so brilliantly. I'm sure those of you playing along did just as well. If you'd like to learn more about these and about other great science stories, head on over to nature.com forward slash news. And speaking of news, it's time for our end of the year news chat. And I'm joined on the line from New York by Brendan Ma. Hello, Adam. Now, Brendan is acting chief features editor. And every year we publish in Nature, the Nature 10, which is the top 10 people who were influential in science in the preceding year. I mean, is this a hard list to collate? This is an extraordinarily hard list to collate. Uh, We are trying to capture a cross-section of the most important science and the most important things happening for scientists in one year and pick people who, you know, represent and embody or were instrumental in, in making those things happen. And you don't just come up with that by yourself, right? Absolutely not. This is a huge team effort. All of our reporters who have been out in the field studying these stories and researching these stories throughout the year are, are feeding back to us and telling us, uh, you know, who the most important people in their particular beats are. Well, one pretty obvious omission from this year's list was, uh, was Donald Trump. We didn't cover him directly, but we did cover some of the activities directly relevant to the scientific community and directly relevant to the environment. And that was uh, his choice of Scott Pruitt as the, the head of the EPA. And he is a pretty much a self-declared enemy of the Environmental Protection Agency for the United States. So to head up this agency that he has um, he has sued, I think, fourteen times, was uh, you know kind of interesting and, and pretty telling of what was in store for science for uh, the Trump administration. Another topic that I suppose has been absolutely dominating the news cycle, not just in science news, but across the spectrum this year has been sexual harassment, of course, and and one of the Nature 10 reflects that. You're absolutely right. Anne Olivarius is uh, sort of a a veteran in the fight for gender equality in academia, and she's she's worked to expose for, for really decades the perpetrators of sexual abuse and harassment and the ways that university systems tend to protect uh, these abusers. So she's been uh, sort of instrumental in a couple of cases this year, uh, trying to see that the uh, universities and the people involved are held accountable. 
Now, one topic I wasn't necessarily expecting to see reflected in the Nature 10 was North Korea. But of course, there's been increased concern about North Korea's nuclear capabilities this past year. That's right. We looked at the North Korean situation through the scope of uh, a person named Lucina Zerbo. He's the head of the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty Organization. And he's been a longtime uh, proponent of essentially uh, nuclear non-proliferation. But the particular way that they've gone about that is trying to ban the testing of nuclear arms. And, and that's what nu- that's what North Korea did this year, is they had one of their largest ever tests of a nuclear weapon. And the interesting uh, association with science beyond just the fact that, uh, you know, as scientists, we all would like to not be killed in a nuclear attack. He, uh, he was kind of instrumental in setting up this worldwide network for detecting tests. And, and that network has actually proven quite useful to, to scientists in different, uh, in different areas, particularly geology and, and oceanography, because they're, it's such a rich sensor network that, that it can be actually useful to them. He sprang to action when he heard about this uh, North Korean test and uh, was, you know, on the phone with, um, with world leaders within moments trying to sort of quell the, the tensions that such things rise and, and trying to keep uh, the proliferation of nuclear arms down. This list doesn't just, of course, touch on uh, the big political stories of the year. There are names on it which are very important to uh, fundamental research. And I suppose maybe the biggest fundamental research story of this year was another LIGO story. This year, with the addition of the Virgo detector, uh, LIGO, Virgo together were able to detect uh, the collision of two neutron stars. And uh, they alerted this network of of traditional optical observatories, uh, and and through that, were able to visualize this these, this neutron star collision in unprecedented detail. And uh, one of the people notable for sort of bringing that network of astronomers together with the uh, with the gravitational wave detector community is uh, Marika Branchesi. So she was one of our our choices as the, the Nature Ten. Another name that the physics community have been talking about a lot this past year is uh, Pan Janwei, who's taken a, a kind of fundamental test of quantum theory to whole new levels. China has really taken an amazing lead in the field of quantum communication, and, and Pan is largely credited for having uh, having pushed China into that position he was able to show that you can communicate between ground-based systems and and satellites uh, showing the quantum state of a single photon. And that's going to be extremely useful in the development of long-distance ultra-secure quantum communications and uh, the eventual development of a quantum internet. Now, I'm I'm not going to make you go through every last name on the list, Brendan. But before I do let you go, I wonder if you could tell us about uh, the the youngest member of this list, who I think is probably younger than our, our typical Nature 10 entrant. Well, a lot of really interesting things happened this year. And uh, one of the ones that really excited me as a, as a person who's just generally interested in biology was the approval of new CAR-T therapies. It's a type of immunotherapy for cancer. And there are so many people involved in the development of this. So who we decided to highlight was uh, Emily Whitehead. She was actually the first child to undergo treatment with this, this innovative cancer therapy. And um, she showed up at the FDA approval hearings with her father 
in a very moving gesture, presented herself as the living testimonial for what this therapy can do. And it'll be really exciting to see next year and in the years to come what uh, scientists do with this approach to treating cancer. Well, that's it for our wrap-up of Nature's 10. But if you were counting, you may have noticed that didn't quite add up to 10. So to find out the last few names and for all the extra write-ups of the people you've just heard about, make sure to head over to nature.com forward slash news. So that's it for our special festive show. If you're in the lab or revising or writing a grant over the next few weeks, we're there for you. We've an archive of over 500 podcasts to keep you company not to mention a whole host of amazing videos, which you can find over at youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. Thank you to all of you for taking the time to listen to us this year. It means a great deal to us. And thank you to all the researchers and writers for giving us something to talk about and some people to talk to. I'm very much looking forward to finding out what ridiculous research 2018 has in store. This is our last regular podcast of 2017, but that doesn't mean we're done for the year just yet. I'll be hosting an end-of-the-year back chat featuring discussions of Donald Trump, the perils of physics, and the papers that no one cites. To play us out, we've got one final jazzy treat for you, performed by Kim Coleman, Steve Waterman, and John Reeves, with lyrics by Richard Van Norden and Noah Baker. It's called Single Cells, and it's an ode to the genomics techniques of the moment. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Adam Levy. See you next year. Flashing through our cells, the genes and RNA. One by one we go, sequencing all our way. Our body's atlas mind, each cell type you need. Expensive, yes, we know it is, but what a cool technique. Whoa, single cells, single cells, packed with RNA. Oh, what fun it is to run a one-cell gene assay. Whoa, single cells, single cells, packed with RNA. Oh, what fun it is to run a one-cell gene assay. Now the future's bright, although the field is young. Sequencing its speed Every lab's competing now So God will take the lead Whoa, single cells, single cells Packed with RNA Whoa, what fun it is to run One cell gene assay Whoa, single cells, single cells Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.